What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Right now, from February 14th, Valentine's Day of 1966, we present... Oh, hey, looks like I played this one before. Who knew? A couple of years ago in the middle of the night, so it should be new to most of you. Uh, program for Valentine's Day featuring Mr. Gene Shepard here on the Golden Age of Radio Special on WBAI New York. Here's Gene. This is Nervous Day for many people. As we know, this is a Valentine's Day, and there's nobody in the entire Western world who gets more nervous about Valentine's Day than good old the U.S. of A. I'll tell you, I have a suspicion that we invented the word L-U-V. We invented it, and uh, we're stuck with it. And I think that uh, <laughs> more people... Are carrying that cross on their back than any other. You know, the, the, you, uh, there there is a there is a lot of uh, talk about that among certain philosophical circles. 
uh, that, that we have created some fantastic monster which hangs on our back and which we will continue to search for all the rest of our born days and never find because we invented it. See, it's, it's something, it's just like if we invented the purple grunk and uh, everybody began to believe there was such a thing as the purple grunk and then we spent all the rest of our lives searching for it and feeling cheated that we never found it and suspecting all the time that everybody else is finding it. Everybody else has tapped into the mother load. So will you please uh, give me a little salute there for just one moment to... Uh, yes, that's right, the national hang-up. Bring it up there. You know, we ought to do something about that slogan on the coins. You know, the one that says... Uh, what is it that says uh, in... Uh, I forget, it's on the tip of my tongue. In something we trust... Forget that. We ought to do something about a slogan. I can't quite remember what it is, but it should say, In love we trust. By God, that's going to carry us through everything. There's no question about it. That is the magic secret ingredient in all the newest detergents. How about that dog food that says, All you need to do is add love. That is just before old Rover the Airedale takes your leg off. Sorry, I've known some Airedales in my times, friends, so don't sit there and say, oh, no. Oh, yeah, yeah, no doubt. And uh, I don't like to touch on what is essentially a very, very touchy situation. But I would warrant you that there must be at least 400 million people within range of my voice who are about to write a play dealing with the loss of love or the search for love or the failure of modern man to achieve love or the failure of a rotten, crummy, insensitive society to appreciate love or <laughs> on and on and on and on. I'll, uh, I, you know, we're, we're about the only we're about the only nation, seriously though, all jesting aside, who who uses phrases like that. I think that's one of the reasons why uh, people all over the world are continually uh, getting the itchy palm, uh, getting that vague little itch in the biceps that they want to hit us on the back of the head with a ball bat, because we go all over the world. We really do. We go all over the world and we talk about we've got to bring love, we've got to bring understanding and truth and helpfulness and sweetness and light and, boy, who knows what, Fords, everything. We've got to bring that all to the rest of the world. And they don't quite understand this. <laughs> and and uh, it, it goes back to a very early period in our existence. You know, love, love takes many forms in America. And currently it takes probably the most virulent of all form, and that's the form... It could be called dynamic begging. Uh, oh yes, I remember. I remember uh, a great line from a play. I'll give you the brass figlety dad with Burns Oakley Palm if you can tell me who said this. Uh, no, it wasn't me. It was a great line from a play, and it said, "You know, it's too bad that the." I'm paraphrasing it, of course, very wildly here, but it says it's too bad that the. In fact, it's a little silly that the American national symbol is the eagle. This is ridiculous. Eagle. It's one thing Americans are not, are eagles. It says what we should have as a na our national symbol is a cocker spaniel, a rather elderly cocker spaniel, sitting up on its hind legs and just looking up, uh, just looking up with its paws held in a begging attitude 
And all it's saying is, uh, a little, little more of that sweetness and light. All it's saying is, please love me, please, please. Yes, uh, this is, <laughs> there's some truth to this, friends. And now we'll award you the Brass Victor Gee with Bonds Oakley Palm, if you can tell me what playwright made that statement. That was not Arthur Miller, who, by the way, who was continually saying that himself. Please love me, please. Miller, in a sense, is a dynamic cocker spaniel. No, this was a much tougher playwright who saw things in a much clearer light than uh, Mr. Miller ever will, and certainly, by all odds, Mr. Albee. However, uh, I... I uh, I wondered about that thing about love. Did I ever tell you about the time that, that uh, Valentine's Day? Uh, of course, you, you learn a lot about Valentine's Day and the love. Have you noticed that almost every song that teenagers sing uses one key word? Right? Very important word. Uh, you got that little thing with the birdies there? I think we'll salute that important word. Bring the little birdies on there. We are going to salute the eternal word. Not love, either. It's naturally. It's that's just implied in every song that we sing, love. But the one word that is the most uh, poignant and probably the silliest, the word that continually hangs around the edges there, is the word forever. I will love you forever and ever, ever, ever. This little 14-year-old pimply-faced lout is singing about how forever he's going to be hung up on Clara. I'm not thinking of that. Hi, <laughs> George. That's Miss Shields there on the bird whistle. Just she's got a hell of a lick. Got not many ideas, but man, she blows. There it goes. Cha-cha-cha. <laughs> I'm a rotten person. Terrible, terrible person. And you know, people write me, they'll say, you crummy, rotten cynic. And they'll write to me in purple ink on green stationery. And it'll have... Uh, Buried. You know, we're the only country in the face of the Western world that could have invented Edgar A. Guest. Uh, we're probably the only country in the face of uh, all all uh, known logic that could have invented Dear Abby. I don't know any other country that's got a Dear Abby working. Now, Dear Abby, of course, is a professional love confessionalist. And uh, that is to say that... Uh, I don't know, you know, it's a... <laughs> But what what is it? I wonder. I wonder what it is that, that made us now. Now, love is is a different thing than that the kind of love that I'm talking about. The American love, which is a prepackaged affair, is not at all the romantic Elizabethan concept of love that that we often refer to as love. You know, the the old romantic ideal, green sleeves, uh, the troubadour, the madrigals, and so on. That was another thing. And in fact, uh, there's no question about it that the that uh, if you if you read the literature well, uh, the knights errant and uh, Sir Mordred and Sir Lancelot, oh, if they went about the business of love with a definite tongue in cheek, and it was uh, it was done uh, it was done you know as a gambit as a gimmick. It really was. It was part of the uh, it was it was the essence of the battles that they fought. It's just like uh, all of mankind goes about this business of peace. Well, you know, it's it's a shtick. Is really what it is. Everybody talks about peace, but everybody secretly digs war. You know, they dig all that shooting and yelling and hollering and the medals and everybody flying up. And you know, the, 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 it, it makes no difference how peaceful you claim you are. You like action. Let's put it that way. It's action. And uh, action takes many forms. And the most 
The most exciting form of action is deadly action. I mean, when guys are belting each other on top of the head with maces of one kind. Now, you can be belting a guy on top of the head with a mace in pursuit of peace. That is... Uh, is uh, the best of all possible worlds, when you can have both of them at the same time. You hit them on the head with a mace called Peace. You have a Peace mace. And, uh, well, you know, so, yeah, schmoo lagoo. You pick your, you pick your stick and you go as far as you can with it. But, uh, uh, the, the love gambit, however, has very special connotations here in America. And, uh, only America would have conceived of the idea of the prepackaged love message. Uh, where people who are primarily illiterate and have trouble even writing out their own checks can go down and buy love sonnets courtesy of the Hallmark Card Corporation and get 28 million of them and send them off. And just I know people who have saved Valentines since they were five years old. They've got Valentines from people they hate. I mean, because, you know, you, you, you learn to hate people after a while and uh, not really hate them. Let's put it this way. Uh, dynamically ignore that's the worst kind of hate. You know, it takes a certain amount of uh, hang-up, a certain amount of... Oh, really, don't, don't, don't think for a minute. It takes a certain amount of involvement to actually hate a person. And uh, love is involvement. Uh, <laughs> and that's why hate is so close to love, because involvement is involvement. And so on the one hand, you can hate the British for walking around and acting so snotty all the time. You know, you can, you can really hate them for that. And at the other, uh, the other hand, you, you secretly feel a sense of... Uh, Involvement with them. They got Westminster Abbey and all that stuff, and the Poets' Corner and Chaucer and Canterbury and and uh, Richard Burton and all them big things, you know. And uh, what do we got? Tab Hunter. We got uh, Lincoln Center. Uh, Lenny Bernstein. Would you please give me a little of that? Uh, we're in. We're in bad shape. Bring it up there. You know, you can see the difference between these two countries just absolutely outlined against the sky if you care to take a, take a quick look. I mean, just take, take a look at a, well, let's say a, a P3 silver cloud Rolls Royce outlined against the sky as opposed to an El Dorado Cadillac. And you see the difference right there, boy, with that medieval, mid-Victorian, Elizabethan plastic neoprene upholstery. Well, we're a pop art culture. Of course, they, 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 they don't do so bad in the slob area either. You know, let's face it, they created the Beatles. Believe me, if the Beatles came from Ashtabula, Ohio, uh, they would be laughed at from pillar to post by the very people who dig them. I could just see four guys singing through their nose coming out of out of Waterloo High School in Ashtabula. They wouldn't have made it to first base. They'd still be playing the American Legion Hall in Zanesville. But uh, since they're English, you know, you can go all the way. I, uh, are you aware? Seriously, I wonder how many people are aware of this. That right now there's a great... Uh, I don't know whether it's an ideological war or some kind of a... Uh, well, it's a great conflict going on. It's not talked about much. And that conflict is uh, related to American actors versus English actors. You aware of that? That, uh, that in the last couple of years, there has been a tremendous upsurge of... Uh, well, it's a, it's a disaffection, kind of an anger, <laughs> being bugged that the entire theater in America is practically lock, stock, and barrel being taken over by 400,000 second-rate English actors. 
And merely because they're English, they make it, you know, all the way here in America. This is an Anglophile country, even though it tries to pretend it isn't. And uh, the, the uh, American actors really teed off by this. Uh, it's, it's a genuine problem. No, it's a genuine economic and... Uh, and uh, it's a, it's a, it's it's a, an artistic problem too, because most of the producers, and I've talked to a few of them about this problem, they know that an English play with an English cast is almost sure to get good reviews in America, uh, just because it is English and just because it's an English cast and it's done by an English director, and it's done with all them funny accents, uh, that uh, somehow makes it seem really theatrical. And so they almost genu generally get good reviews. And so this, this is making the uh, producers uh, opt for safety. Because let's face it, good reviews make or break your old bazoom here in this country. If you don't, if you don't get a good review, you're, you're, believe me, you talk about losing paddles up creeks, Dan. Uh, you have never been around a play that got blasted by eight reviewers and eight major papers the night they're having their big party. Well, I have, fella. And I've been a member of the cast, Dad. Uh, when when them reviews came in, and believe me, they were like written on wet cabbage leaves. It was awful. You really know you're in trouble when about one o'clock in the morning you're at a party, see, and you're you're playing the the second goldsmith in the Mother Carey's Whoopies, and uh, you've you've uh, you've killed him in in uh, Boston, you know, and you've laid him out in Toronto, and all of a sudden you're playing New York, and now you're having your big party. And you're having it at Sardis or the Algonquins or something like that. And everybody's yelling and hollering and they're applauding each other and shaking their hands and everything. And all of a sudden it's 1.30 in the morning. You're still drinking and yelling and hollering. And nobody has brought in the papers. You know you're in trouble. They're not allowing the papers to get in. <laughs> it's now, I'm not, I'm not kidding you. This is a fact. You look at your watch and say, 1.30? Where are the papers? And then you say, oh, give me another drink. How about a drink here, Charlie? You know that you better not see them papers. Because if they're good reviews, they're already in there by 11.15. They've got them in. They've got them tacked up. They've got them photostatted. They're setting them to music now. They've hired Richard Rogers to write a march. The whole bit. Well, speaking of bad... This is W-O-R-A-M and F-N, New York. Speaking of toy geese, hit it, man. Hit it, man. My name doesn't matter. Let's just say I'm a highly paid executive of the Ludens Company. I must report to you that our campaign to discourage people from chewing Luden's cough drops is a partial failure. We have tried every way we know to get you chewers to dissolve Luden's cough drops slowly so the medication can trickle down slowly to give you temporary relief from coughs due to colds and minor sore throat. What can we do to make you understand? Should we engineer Luden's cough drops so that they make embarrassing sounds when you chew one, like this? Should we publish the names of known chewers? Those of you out there who chew Luden's cough drops, please write us your suggestions. Address your letter to me, Mr. X, the Luden's Never Chew Society, Luden's, Reading, Pennsylvania. Mm. Well, that's disgusting. Did you hear those embarrassing sounds? Would you please recue that for me, Mario? I'd like to hear that again. I'm surprised at them Luden's peoples. Incidentally, do you know that now there is uh, there has developed the great god Luden, uh, which is a big swinging religion now in certain headhunting tribes of the upper Amazon. And it developed because 
Uh, I went up, uh, as you know, I went up the Amazon River with a couple of other guys, including a guy from Ludens, and we gave to the tribes up there, the Sharper tribes, we gave them four dozen T-shirts. And they love T-shirts. They're really hung on them. And, <laughs> yeah, they are, yeah. And, and we gave them four dozen T-shirts with gigantic red L's that stood for Ludens. And uh, the Sharper chief, he went, and uh, he asked me what that meant. See, and I said, Luden, Luden, big chief, Luden in Reading, PA, Luden. He said, oh, Luden. Well, by George, uh, we understand now that heads are being lopped off shoulder blades uh, on behalf of the great god Luden, the big red L in the sky. Can I hear that obscene sound again, please? I want to hear that sound. My name? No, no, no. You cue it into the sound. I don't want that guy to get in here and yell at me anymore. And while we're on the subject of that, let's uh, do another commercial. Uh, oh, yeah, Evelyn Wood, uh, by the way, is having another series of demonstrations. And uh, we understand that a lot of people called the last time that Evelyn Wood, the Reading Dynamics Institute, the last time they gave their demonstrations, they didn't have enough seats. Uh, a lot of people went down there, and they had to turn a few away. But these are really wild. If you don't know anything about Evelyn Wood... This is the same outfit that the late President Kennedy used to send many of his staff to to increase their reading speed up to three and four times. Now, if you're a student or a doctor or somebody who has to digest all kinds of dull and technical material every week, I would suggest that this is one great way to do it because they will guarantee to increase your reading speed between three and four times and incidentally, increase your comprehension rate, too. This is not a phonus balonus. The Reading Dynamics Institute is located at 17 West 44th Street, and they invite you to attend a free demonstration to discover how you can be helped. Incidentally, this is a great show, even if you don't take the course. You should see these people reading two and 3,000 words a minute. It is a wild scene. And uh, the demonstrations will be held Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday... And Thursday, that's the 14th, the 15th, the 16th, and the 17th of February at 12.30, that's in the afternoon, at 5.30 and 7.30 each evening. That means three a day. And all you have to do is call TN72950, reserve a seat, and then make a, you know, go there with a check. It's a great, uh, it's a great cheap date, and I think you'll enjoy it. That's TN72950. And tell them old friendly chef here sent you now. Let's see. Well, what do we have? We got another one? Hey, let me hear that sound again. You give me that. Like this? <coughs> Should we publish? That's awful. For heaven's sakes. The radio's getting such evil taste. Now, speaking of bad taste, hit that button there, please. Hit, hit the button. People rely on the New York Times to give them interesting food for the mind and interesting food for the table. Craig Claiborne, food news editor of the Times, explains why. You know, in the course of a year, we print in excess of a thousand recipes, and we try to outline recipes. He makes it sound so painful. The amount of possible. We have a large test kitchen. If we print a recipe for hamburger, it's the best of all possible hamburger. And the same thing is true if we print a recipe for something a little bit more exotic, along the lines of a quiche Lorraine, which is, of course, a Swiss cheese and onion custard pie. We like to make people feel and to know that they can produce the best of all possible quiche Lorraine. Satisfy your hunger for the best in every field from food to foreign affairs. The 
the New York Times. If you're without it, you're not with it. For home delivery, call Murray Hill 7 0700. That's MU 7 0700. Makes it sound so painful. Uh, let's see, we have with us uh, uh, the Rover Motor Car Corporation of Great Britain. Oh, my God. Why, George? We will fight them from the hedgerows. We will fight them from the beaches. We will fight them with blood, sweat, and tears. And tonight we salute another product of the indomitable British and the spirit of the Empire. The Rover 2000. An automobile practically impossible to kill. There are rovers running around that were built, believe me, there are rovers running around built before they even invented automobiles. The rover car was a car that just had to be created since cars as a concept were kicking around in the human mind. It's a magnificent machine, and if you're planning to look into the car world this coming spring, uh, be sure to see the Rover 2000, especially if you're a guy who's uh, done a lot of sports car driving and you, for one reason or another, need a back seat and you've got to get out of the two-seater scene. Uh, I know how it is, man. That can be a real rotten drag. Uh, I suggest you look at the Rover 2000. This is a goer, Dad. And uh, send us a card here to Rover. That's me. Uh, 1440 Broadway. We'll send you pictures and the whole scene. Okay? Like the taste of real draft beer? Now you can take it home with you. Peels did it. Put real draft beer in 12-ounce cans. Try it yourself. You'll agree. It's really draft beer in a can. And it needs no refrigeration until you're ready to drink it. The only thing we didn't put in the can is the atmosphere of your favorite tavern. <laughs> Oh, oh, one more, one more note there. Oh, okay, well, let's get back to the world here. Want to get back to the? Uh, well, you want to hear a little more about that? That big problem. You know, you don't hear much said about this, really. Uh, the the battle between the British actors and the American actors. And uh, you know, there's a myth, uh, and I think it's a myth. I, I I think it's partly, it's partly due to our anglophiliac uh, problems, anglophiliacal problems. Uh, that the English have such fantastic... They do have great actors for certain things. But some of the worst naturalistic dramas I have ever seen performed, I have seen performed in England. Uh, <laughs> they, 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 just don't, they just don't go very far in that world. And yet, um, we, we here in America, because of our tremendous hang-up on the British, uh, find it almost impossible to accept as serious an actor who is an American actor. Uh, really seriously. And more and more, this rift is beginning to develop. Boy, I hear, I hear actors, uh, many actor friends of mine, say things which you would not believe. And of course, uh, they, they are often very critical of, uh, of the English actor uh, for many good and technical reasons. You know, I, I suppose what it is, again, is that we have a tendency to accept in many, many areas of our life, I don't care whether it's, this is part of the American's ability to love. In a nutty way, you know, using that word love. We have the ability to love everybody but ourselves. Uh, almost every hippie I know is fantastically in love with every other country in the world but America. Even if he doesn't know anything about the other country, he just knows that the peasants of uh, Upper Guernica must be beautiful, simple souls who do nothing but fish for sardines and sing folk songs. And uh, 
and uh, provide the basis of fantastic love sonnets and one thing and another. But this is this is part of the. Um, I think individually we're like that too. I think this lies at the basis of of a lot of the search for identity uh, hoopla that you find constantly running through American novels and American plays and so on. Is that we really do have the ability to embrace others, which in a way I suppose negates our ability to understand and embrace ourselves. You know, one of the greatest myths that, that I've heard uh, repeated over and over and over and over and over again is American chauvinism. I've heard this on, on many, many sides constantly, and I will concede there are numbers of people in America who are chauvinistic. But I will tell you this, as a world traveler, and believe me, I, I have been around the world, uh, I, have, I have never yet seen any country... Uh, that is as little chauvinistic, by and large, and officially, as America is. And I suppose a lot of people are going to say, I'm chauvinistic merely for saying this. It's funny, uh, you have never seen anyone more chauvinistic. British, for example, practically every Englishman that is interviewed, and I hear them dozens of times on the radio here. I've heard, I've heard a hundred of them in the past six weeks. They're, all, they're constantly being interviewed on the Arlene Francis show. They're constantly being interviewed by this telephone show and that one. And the Long John show and the, this show and that show. They're always on the radio. And and the, what runs through almost all of their uh, interviews is what's wrong with America. Now, uh, I have yet to hear an American being interviewed on the BBC about what's wrong with England. I have never heard this. And I've heard plenty of Americans being interviewed on the BBC. It's always the opposite. Every time an American is interviewed on the BBC, he just gushes. Oh, he goes on and on and on about him. Fantastic. And yet the British have this uh, this reputation for being such polite people. Uh, <laughs> you know, people in good taste. I think it's an exceedingly bad taste to continually uh, appear on other... Even though it may be true, again, you see. Uh, I know that I would feel a little funny if I appeared. And I have been interviewed, you know, on the BBC. And I have been interviewed on various broadcast uh, from the British Isles. And I, you know, there's a lot wrong with Britain. There's, there's a lot wrong with every country. But Americans somehow innately, especially Americans who are in a certain class, uh, you might call them the intellectual, articulate, uh, writing, reading, acting, performing, thinking, uh, editorial class, would never consider it uh, in the bounds of good taste. We just don't do it. Just to, you, you've, you've never heard anybody do this, Mario. And yet, uh, constantly I hear people on the various radio shows from other countries talking about how uh, ridiculous. And, of course, the, the interviewer eating it up. He loves it. He's in, and uh, please, uh, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Jonathan Miller, uh, tell us more about uh, how our Congress is a bunch of idiotic fatheads. Uh, We'll be back with Mr. Miller, who has been in America here for two weeks, who really knows all about our system. We'll be back in just a moment, and he'll tell us more about how crummy we are after this commercial. And uh, you hear this constantly, and these guys, well, uh, Barry, I'll, I'll tell you, Barry, there's no problem, actually, at all. I realize that the American system allows for people to talk about it. And you say, boobery, and, uh, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they eat it up. Well, now this is a, this <laughs> this comes from the Americas. We have been discovered probably 
probably about 15 years ago, we were discovered by the rest of the world as the great patsy. I suspect that at any time, in any given period in the world's history, there has to be, just like in every group of people, there's, there's one guy, old, old, friendly, nebbish Ollie, that everybody can yell at. You know, old Ollie is, is everybody's boob. Old Ollie takes everybody's jokes and, and uh, buffooneries, and he, he just goes along with it. Well, this is a necessary thing. This is a kind of a, uh, an outlet for aggressions and one thing or other. And right now, we are it in the world. Not that we don't necessarily deserve it. Not that Ollie doesn't deserve it. But the point is, we're taking it. Now, uh, I have traveled in many, many countries. And, and I, you know, we talk about chauvinism. Oh, boy. Have you ever been in France? Oh, boy. I mean, they go so far out in left field with chauvinism that it isn't chauvinism anymore. It must be something else. I mean, if, believe me, if, if you think the DAR has chauvinism, you ought to hear Charles de Gaulle when he's really wound up on the subject of the fantastic greatness of France, the French people, everything French. Now, on the other hand, the British, of course, are very much like this in their own way. Uh, one of the most chauvinistic people I've ever met in my born days, and you never hear about this, boy, oh, boy, I'll tell you, they're incredible, is the Australian. The Australian, I guess, would be really, in a sense, uh, a, a nation of almost uh, distilled Babbitts. Now, you all know about Babbitt and Sinclair Lewis's delineation of him. Well, I'll tell you, Australia has distilled Babbitt. They have multiplied him by ten. They have amplified him. They have given him, uh, they've given him a suit to wear with zippers all over it and neon lights shining out of the top. And he goes to town. You get into Australia, believe me, and you you just you can't believe it. You think they'll put you on at first because you're not used to people coming just flatly right out and saying, "Well, of course, mate. We, we all know that Australia is the greatest country in the world." Now we just we just oh, about the greatest country in the world. What, what are you going to do? You said, "Well, no." <laughs> you realize he's being straight. <laughs> he's, he means it. And so everywhere you go, you find that this this galloping belief in oneself. And one's country it is almost a universal trait. Uh, you come to America, and we're quite the opposite. We we must we must concede that that, uh, that America is uh, is an infectual in almost every area, or else you don't get printed. And if you do ever write uh, anything, if you ever if you ever write anything good about the American theater, or or, or about American playwrights, or American actors. You have to qualify it with, of course, uh, the admission that all the other countries are better. You, ha you just got to you just got to qualify it with that. Now, this is galloping all over in, in uh, it's, of course, it's galloping in fashions. It's galloping in the, the pop art world. Uh, by pop art, I don't mean the, uh, the visual arts. I'm talking about music, practically. I, I know at least uh, 15 rock and roll groups from places like Chillicothe that have gone to Leeds to acquire a brief British accent to come back here to make the scene big, and uh, now if you you know that I know one actor, I'm serious when I when I tell you this, I know one actor who banged around New York for about nine years, and you know he just got he he appeared in a lot of stuff, uh, he appeared in a lot of off Broadway stuff, a lot of Broadway things, a lot of television things, nothing, no, nobody ever said anything, you know, he's just another guy around here. So he finally said, well, the hell with it. And he packed up and he went over to England. 
Well, he was over there not more than seven or eight months. He changed his name. Uh, he called himself Mike before that. He, he could change his name to Michael with an E. I'm serious. I'm not kidding you at all. Now, I'll tell you who it is after I get up here. He changed his name to Michael, and overnight he came back to America, and now he's a big English actor. And everybody is wedding. I mean, everybody is cheering and yelling and hollering. It's fascinating. I've seen this actually work. He, he came back immediately, and he got movie roles. He got everything, and he's acquired this vague English accent. It's a bad one because he actually comes from the Midwest. But it's enough to fool everybody in, in uh, uh, along Broadway, and it's enough to fool everybody in Hollywood, and he's making it big now. And this poor guy knocked around for about 10 or 15 years in New York, and nobody gave him a second chance. So they, you know, just another actor. In fact, he recently made a big movie that uh, you and I saw. I'll tell you about it. Funny, funny story. Now, there's a lesson in this, man. <laughs> there is a lesson in this. Uh, there, there, there really is. And, and uh, I know, I know. Uh, for example, uh, perhaps this isn't happening yet in your hometown, but practically every uh, office with any pretensions here in New York City is knocking itself out to try to get English secretaries. Are you, are you aware that there's a tremendous flood of English girls coming into America to work as secretaries? Now, they, they may be lousy secretaries. Uh, they may not know how to type. Uh, they may be terrible with shorthand. But if they have a good accent, when they answer the phone, and it sounds, oh, Bieber, do you know? This is a swing, and everybody everybody's going for it. Now, uh, this, this, is a, uh, this is something that uh, has not yet been totally reported on, and I think it has to do with our general cultural feeling of inferiority. Uh, the, one of the first things that, that every kid does when he goes to one of the eastern schools, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, is that he tries to pick up uh, the Harvard accent, which really, in essence, is an English accent. He tries to pick up an English or or a, or or a Yale or a Harvard accent. It's all part of that whole that whole scene. Uh, well, well, uh, this I think stems again uh, from the the American hang up on love. He 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 really he really loves uh, he really loves the other countries. He, he really does, and this is great. This is fine if it was reciprocated. Uh, it, it, we are always we are always so so, uh, so surprised. Many people are a little offended too. I've heard interviewers offended when an Englishman or a, a man from another country uh, shows up on his program and he says, "Well, what do you think of America?" And the guy says, "I think it's fantastic." There's a pause. He says, "Well, well, uh, well yes, but uh, what do you really think of it? You don't have to be nice to us." <laughs> I've actually heard this. He's like, "No, I, I think it's great. It's fantastic." And, and I, I've known several English people, among them a very famous journalist, for example, who who uh, went out of his skull when he first arrived in America. He loved it. He just he just traveled all over America, and he, he dug it. In fact, applied for American citizenship. And you know that he has to really hide this from American friends that he's got? Because it's considered uh, uh, an act of insanity by his hip friends. Now, uh, one, of the, one of the funniest areas in, in which this is uh, operative is the other side. Uh, very few people in... Uh, of course, the, the, the average walk and run... You've got to understand that in, in, in England, it's quite the opposite. The average walking around Englishman does not share 
the Americans' enthusiasm for England. Uh, he certainly doesn't. Uh, and if you don't, if you think I'm just inventing this, uh, John Osborne does not write out of a vacuum. Uh, when Osborne wrote things like Look Back in Anger and The Entertainer, uh, he wasn't kidding, you know. And uh, uh, But the average walking around Englishman, he knows better. Just like the average walking around America, America knows that America is not a paradise. Uh, the average walking around Englishman knows that England is not an intellectual receptacle of all that is good and all that is fine in Western culture. As a matter of fact, uh, this was recently illustrated by a, a series of articles that appeared in a top English newspaper. It's a funny thing. It caused the National Furor. Uh, he, uh, uh, a man, uh, and he was a mechanic of some kind, who was fairly literate, but a mechanic. Uh, he decided uh, that he wanted, to, he wanted to visit America. It was a big thing with him. And so he saved his money. And this, this went on for a couple of years until finally he, uh, he had enough money to, to pay for his passage and his family's passage from England to America. And they came over here, and they arrived in New York, and they bought a used Plymouth. And they traveled all over America in this used Plymouth, which they bought for about $250. You know, the kind of thing you can buy anywhere, uh, just a, about an eight- or nine-year-old Plymouth. And he traveled all over the country. And he went back, after about three months, he went back and wrote a series of articles about how fantastic it was in America for an ordinary working-type guy. He couldn't believe that you could get, for example, such great food as you can at the Howard Johnson for so little. There's nothing like that, you know, in England. There's no equivalent of that. And uh, he couldn't believe that you could buy a car for just a couple hundred dollars and you could get gas for, you know, 28 cents a gallon. And, and uh, everywhere you went, people uh, treated him like a gentleman, even though he was just a mechanic and, and waitresses said, sir, to him. And all this. He couldn't get over this. And he couldn't get over the fact that he, he could stay in a motel with his kids and, and uh, it cost a little. It was so, so, to him, extremely elegant for just an ordinary working man. Well, well uh, there was a tremendous outcry all over England about this because he was saying good things about America. And... Uh, and, and, and there were two groups of thought immediately began to split. And uh, the point was made by one of the editorial writers that most of the people who come to America to critic, to be critics of America, come from the upper classes of one kind, or the privileged classes, the Oxford graduates, the journalists, uh, the actors. Uh, they're people who are used to going first class wherever they are. And so they come to America, and first class isn't as elegant in America as it is in, say, uh, the Dorchester Hotel in England. And furthermore, they're not treated as a privileged class. And so the guy will get into a cab, and nobody, nobody bows and scrapes and tugs at his fetlock or his forelock or whatever it is you tug at. Uh, nobody says, uh, and, and so they go back and say, what a rotten country. What a, what a slobby bunch. Say, because after all, if, if Lord Windesmere comes over here, he, he expects to be treated like Lord Windesmere when he walks into the Howard Johnson. And, and the, you know, he has to get in line with everybody else. He can't dig this. He just doesn't, doesn't know this is a fact. He does not dig it. Uh, most people who come from the privileged classes in other countries do not like real democracy which means getting at the end of the line if you have to arrive ten minutes late. <laughs> Little things like that. Uh, getting at the end of the line in the bus. Many, many little things about democracy which the other countries just don't go for. For example, we don't have anything like first and second class travel 
on trains. We just don't. You just buy a ticket, that's all. But on almost all the continental to the first and second class travel, and by George, when you travel first class, you do not sit with little short fat guys that have been eating garlic salami sandwiches. You just don't. And so uh, there's, a, there's a different world. And I'm not trying to be chauvinistic about it, but I do think that it's partly, partly due to the Americans' hang-up on the word love. The, the word love uh, is, incidentally, not as nearly uh, used in other parts of the world as it is here. Now, uh, there's another word which we don't use much in America, which is much more operative in other countries, and that word is respect. The word respect rarely is used in America. You have to love somebody. Uh, you have to... Uh, somehow that's a good quality. And it could very well be that we've invented this word, you know. It could very well be a non-existent commodity. Uh, of course, this is an argument. You can go on and on and on and on about arguing what the word love means. Love can be hate in other people's terms. Uh, where is it? You know, did you, how, how did you do with your Valentine's? You doing okay this year, you know? All those little printed things. It reminds me of the of the Western Union syndrome. You know, you, there are 38 different love telegrams that you can select. You can select message number three, M.N. Reno. Expect to hear from my lawyer. Be my Valentine. You know, there's all kinds. There's all kinds of ways to express love. Oh yeah. There's alimony. There's a lot of ways. Just keep your knees loose and be careful. It's starting to come up around the knees here. By George. express love in the final minute of this broadcast of the Golden Age of Radio special would be to call and make a pledge at 212-209-2950. That was Gene Shepard from Valentine's Day 1966. And that wraps up our extravaganza this evening, although if you would like to call and take out a pledge, I wouldn't mind. $4,500 we've raised, and we've got 48, uh, 42 seconds to uh, make another five or $600. <laughs> Otherwise, stay tuned for our Paul Martin with Back of the Book. I've been Max Schmied. That was Gene Shepard. We're out of here. Uh, At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.